experiment that I've got to have it made. I'll activate the rheostat 2000 centigrade. I'll integrate component H, accelerate the phase. Now it's time to throw the switch 10 million gamma rays. Two million? Four, six, eight. Who do we appreciate? I found it! He's found it! The professor? Yes? What is it? What is it? Yes, what is it? Why, it's Flubber! Flubber? It's a dream unfurled! Uh-huh! Flubber! Flubber! We'll get you out of this world! It's the greatest! The greatest! It's a boon oh, to man! If nothing else will do it! Ha <laughs> Flubber can! Welcome everyone to this first episode of the first season of the Medfield College Film Society. My name is Jeff Crawford. I am joined by my society members, and we're excited to be with you tonight. First off, Robert McSwain. How's it going, Robert? It is going absolutely fantastic. I can't wait to get into this thing. We are done with the pilots. We're putting the pedal down and getting into a true Disney classic tonight. Yes, and we're going to turn to the mountains of North Carolina where it's actually snowing. Andy Brown's with us. Andy, how's it going out there? Hey, everybody. You can tell I'm all excited to be here. I'm ready to talk about this movie. I have thoughts. So let's get into it. Do you wear something different for season one than you would before? <laughs> um, no, I'm saying. I actually wear yeah, what's, the, what's the pilot attire for this? Or, or... I'm wearing a tuxedo like they wore to the, uh, when the Charlotte Hornets started in the Charlotte Coliseum. <laughs> oh, nice. Nice. Uh, I'm wearing an sure. actual tuxedo. <laughs> Um, okay. Down to Florida we go, checking in from Orlando. Michael Crawford, how's it going? <laughs> Orlando, hello. Orlando uh, reporting This is feels like a gala event, so how's Orlando? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, I'm in my my pilot attire, my post pilot attire. It's not a pilot, so no, I'm not wearing my pilot suit. Anyway, I'm fine. How are you? Doing great. I'm excited to talk about this movie. Will you introduce it for us, please? Yes. Well, today we're talking about The Absent-Minded Professor, a 1961 Disney classic. Wackiness ensues when an absent-minded professor creates flubber, a substance that could save his university and hopefully his engagement. What is that university, for those who don't know? Medfield College Uh of Technology. I see it's all coming together now. (laughs) That's us. Now is That's that a coincidence, us. Michael, or you know, is it is there is there some sort of tie in here? What's going the on? The odds are astronomical that it would be a coincidence. This is this is how we bring it all together. I think I think it's only fair that we kick off every season with a visit to Medfield and the wacky shenanigans that uh, go on there. For they are legion. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> so this is a. Uh, a bona fide uh, Disney classic, I think it's safe to say, unlike uh, some of the ones we listened to in our pilot episodes or that we watched in our pilot episodes. Uh, this was the second uh, live-action comedy that the Disney studio ever did. Uh, in 1959, they made The Shaggy Dog, which also starred Fred McMurray and Tommy Kirk, uh, as does this movie. And it was such a success that they went into the live-action comedy business and so in 1961, The Absent-Minded Professor came along. It's directed by Robert Stevenson, who was an English director who was brought to the U.S. by David O. Selznick in the 1940s. 
he went to Disney in 1956 and wound up making 19 films in 20 years. Uh, a lot of the movies that you think of when you think of Disney, Old Yeller, That Darn Cat, the first two Lovebug films, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and his magnum opus, Mary Poppins. In the 1970s, Variety called him the most commercially successful director of all time at that point, wow. uh, because he just cranked these out one after another. Uh, the film was written and produced by Bill Walsh, who had started at Disney in 1943 as a press agent. Then he began producing television in the 1950s and then features in 1959 with uh, The Shaggy Dog, as I mentioned. Uh, his credits include That Darn Cat, Love Bug, Mary Poppins, many of the same uh, things that Robert Stevenson worked on. And after Walt's death, he became part of the committee that ran the company. Uh, the movie is based on a series of short stories by Samuel Taylor, which Walt optioned during World War II. And it stars an A-team of Disney regulars. We've got Fred McMurray as Ned Brainerd, the titular absent-minded professor. Uh, Nancy Olsen as Betsy Carlisle, his fiance. Keenan Wynn as Alonzo Hawk, the bad guy. Elliot Reed as Shelby Ashton, the other bad guy. Uh, Tommy Kirk. Uh, Leon Ames is the head of uh, Midfield College and a slew of cameos by well-known character actors. We like to mention Disney legends that take part in these movies. And by my count, I counted in the credits 12 officially sanctioned, I guess you'd say, Disney legends. Uh, Fred McMurray, who was the uh, very first Disney legend ever named. Tommy Kirk, Wally Bogue, Ed Wynn, Paul Fries, uh, the brothers Sherman, George Bruns, who did the music, Bill Walsh, Robert Stevenson, Peter Ellenshaw, who did special effects, and Don DeGrady, who was a story consultant for this. So it's got a really big pedigree. And uh, I think compared to some of the stuff that we've watched before, which featured heavily sort of sitcom actors, this movie has a cast of uh, really strong studio film character actors. Uh, most of these actors would have been really well-known at the time. Uh, Fred McMurray and Nancy Olsen had both been at Paramount. Uh, she had been nominated for an Oscar for Sunset Boulevard, and Fred McMurray had been in a ton of stuff. And Keenan Wynn and Leon Ames had been at MGM. So these are people that would have been really well recognized at the time. Let me ask you a question, though. What is a Disney legend? I mean, is that an actual term, or is it just you just kind of throwing that term around? It is, it is like an official thing. They started doing, uh, I think it was... I want to say 1987 or 1988, uh, where they started naming people who had like made big contributions to the sort of the studio's history. And wasn't Fred McMurray in a class by himself in the first class? I don't know. I I've I've never heard the story as to why he was the first. I mean, so many other like you look at the people that came in kind of the years after that, or the people you would probably think of like people who were there at the studio at the beginning. I don't know why Fred McMurray was first and why he was alone. Like in years that followed, it'd be like, you know, nine or 10 people at a time, you know, pretty well-known actors and like animators and creative people and stuff. But, but yeah, it's to your question, it's like an officially sanctioned thing. And now they do it every other year. They bring in people. And there is, uh, there's hearsay that, it might not be completely uh, Disney legends anymore. Like yeah, people from ABC get it. Robin Roberts got it the other year. So yeah, Stan Lee's gotten it. George Lucas has right. gotten it. So as they, as they bring in things to the company, they kind of spread it around. Uh, we were, we, we were in the audience when Robin Williams received his Disney legend award. Weren't we, Michael? Oh, wow. 
Yeah, I'd forgotten about that, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Go back real quick to the music. The Sherman Brothers wrote the theme song to this podcast. For those of you who didn't know, it's Medfield College Fight Song, and they wrote that. And it was the very first thing they ever wrote for a Disney film. Double bonus. Mm-hmm. Boom. Yeah, let me ask a question here. So um, this is we're in the infancy of the live action movies that Disney produced. I mean, we're, there's so many heavyweights in this movie, so many you know future legends and up and coming stars. I mean, you just mentioned the Sherman Brothers. I mean, was there pressure on the studio to really, I mean, hit, hit these one, hit these out of the park? Or I mean, that, is that why we're seeing these guys, or, or is it because they were just you know coming up up the, the ranks at the time and just happened to be really super talented? I, that's a good question. I. I think Walt just pulled people like the actors that were well known. And I think just that he liked in general, I don't know if there was a lot of pressure. Uh, Like I said, the first live action comedy they did was Shaggy dog. And that wasn't originally intended to be a movie. They were preparing that as a television show and it kind of evolved into a movie and was a huge hit at kind of by surprise. And so they started doing more of these, so I think it was just kind of an extension of what they had been doing because they had started getting into live action stuff. They'd done like Zorro and the Mickey Mouse Club and had started building a back lot. This was the first film that used like the residential street, like a lot of where we'll talk about, you know, them going through the neighborhood where all the houses are. That's the residential street on the back lot. And they built that for this film. So this was just kind of the start of the studio really taking off with like live action stuff. Well, thank you, Michael. Uh, It's time to now get into this movie. Our movie begins with a Buena Vista graphic, and we hear this really weird horn riff. And I guess I tossed the question to our historian and our musician here. Was this normal that we always hear this horn riff with the Buena Vista pictures graphic? I think they do a different one every time, a kind of like brief thing to call people's attention, a fanfare. And I suppose this one's supposed to kind of match the fight song collegiate. It's just very aggressive and... It's very um, like here comes something wacky. Yeah, the opening here with uh, Professor Ned Brainerd. He's doing a chemistry experiment, or it could be a physics experiment. Uh, we'll just call it a science experiment because it's pretty broad, and he's talking about energy taking many forms. So it's a nice little foreshadowing to what's to come in the movie. And he begins by talking about acoustic energy and how it was discovered by an Italian who one night was singing an aria in a Milano pizza parlor, and he he sort of quips that you know you know the whole story and I, I laugh because i don't know the whole story i mean i've always heard legends about this but i didn't understand why he, he made that 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 reference so professor brainer pulls out a trumpet and begins to hit some high notes and goes to the top of the register and by the and way he's see, a killer horn player he can oh, really yeah, blow he can really yeah he's got some chops there's no question about it uh he's, he's going all the way up to the to the high a or, or above so glass starts breaking, and then we see the glass of a, a student's glasses break. It was a really cool effect, yeah. Yeah. Well, how was this effect achieved? But 
So then a beaker breaks, and the contents of the beaker fall into a tub of you know, boiling something, and then we see another explosion, and then our fight song begins. And we see scenic Medfield College. Which is actually, I looked it up, was Pomona College uh, out in California. And I apologize to all of our Pomona listeners. I don't know 100% sure where Pomona is located. I just know it's somewhere out west, somewhere on the <laughs> west coast. The, uh, the uh, alma mater of Roy E. Disney. Oh. So I don't know if that had anything to do with it or not, or if it was just a scenic college. So Brainerd emerges from the smoke to give his students an assignment, and when he opens his notebook, we see 8.30 tonight, get married in big capital letters. So we have our call to action now. So Brainerd cancels his assignment and says, don't worry about it, I'm busy tonight. So the next scene, we're introduced to Betsy Carlisle, who is in a car with Shelby Ashton, who is reciting poetic verse in an effort to make Betsy feel bad about her upcoming wedding. And so, yeah, why well, is she in the car with him? I don't. That's that, that, and that's exactly what I put in my notes. It's like, why in the world is she in the car with this guy who's hitting on her this this blatantly? In my notes, I have in all caps. Why does she hang out with Shelby? He is the worst. He really is like this total like era specific creeper guy who's just like totally creeping on her like nonstop. And it's it's he is terrible. Terrible. Very bad. Who's the actor that does um, that play Shelby? Elliot Reed is his name. And man, he is like he (laughs) as awful as Shelby is like he he owns that awfulness. He's just so gross and slimy. Yeah, fun fact about him. He was the so in Seinfeld. There's a couple that goes and buys the the Kramer painting, and he is the old man. That's who, uh, unbelievable. Says he loathes this painting. I loathe it. That's right. So weird. <laughs> of all the of all the role, like he was in other stuff like around this time, but I had no idea he was that guy. That is so bizarre. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. So she's rejecting his, his offers and his advances, and we find out that Pro- Professor Brainerd has forgotten his wedding twice before, and we hear the joke, the third time's the charm for the first time from Shelby Ashton. And we find out, surprisingly enough, that Professor Ashton is a professor of romance languages, which really sounds like a liberal arts uh, professor kind of uh, gig to me. And I have a couple of liberal arts professors who listen to the podcast. No offense, guys. But if you watch the movie, I'm sure you'll laugh and, and, and be with me on that one. So but my, my sticking point about this is they say he's romance languages, which means like French and Italian and whatever. But then later they say he's an English teacher and he's always quoting Shakespeare. So I think yeah. they like forgot or didn't understand like what he was supposed to be. It's like Brainerd's like physical chemistry is just kind of all science at once. And like Shelby's just sort of like all literature at once or something. Do you think Shelby's in the friend zone? I mean, that's what I would think he'd be, right? Oh, he's definitely friend zone. Yeah, there's no yeah. question about it. But yeah. why would he even be in that zone? He doesn't belong in that. He doesn't belong in any zone. <laughs> He's successful, right? I can see the attraction. Well, well I he, guess. he goes to he goes to the uh, the rival college. So he, I mean, the real professors are at Medfield College, and not over at uh, Rutland University. There's this whole like it's setting up this rivalry between you know he's looking down at Brainerd because Brainerd's at you know lowly Medfield, and he's at Rutland, which is, and I. 
being, you know, growing up in the world that I grew up in, I always thought of Rutland as Duke. Oh, I always yeah. equated yeah. like Rutland with Duke in my mind. And especially with this movie with like Shelby, like I seem to like Shelby. I mean, it's, it's like, yeah, he's he just Duke. embodies the Duke professor. Yeah, exactly. And our, and our apologies to any Duke professors that are listening. <laughs> I don't apologize. <laughs> no, no, I apologize for nothing. <laughs> so Betsy steps into her boss's house and her boss is president Daggett of Medfield college. Uh, he had a great buzz cut. He did. You could really you could set your watch to that cut. Yeah, I mean, there's no yeah he's got like a real sort of Eisenhower's America buzz. <laughs> Again, everybody's doubtful that this wedding's going to take place, and Betsy says it is all taken care of. That she's asked Professor Brainerd's housekeeper to make sure he gets there. And we cut immediately to Professor Brainerd's house where the housekeeper is uh, whistling around the house uh, and uh, putting out notes everywhere saying, the ring is in your suit pocket. She opens the window to call Professor who is in his garage tinkering. But yeah, his his housekeeper, Miss Miss Chatsworth, she's a really interesting, interesting person, interesting vibe to her. I agree. She's my second favorite character in this whole movie. (laughs) That's awesome. I actually, I had to look her up because she's such like a, like you said, it's like a weird vibe. She's such a, like a distinctive kind of presence in this movie. So I looked her up. Her name is Belle Montrose. (laughs) And she was a former vaudeville performer, like a big time vaudeville performer. And uh, um, Milton Berle once said she was the funniest performer vaudevillian he had ever seen. And She's the mother of Steve Allen, another old-timey performer huh. from this era. Wow. But, yeah, this was, like, the first movie she had ever made. She'd been, like, on the stage. And this is the first movie. Like, she made this, and she has a cameo in the in the, the sequel to this. And that's, like, her movie career. So I don't know how they wound up getting her yeah. <laughs> or why. Like <laughs> the talk show Steve Allen? Yeah, that yeah, that guy. Wow, that's amazing. She yeah, just seems so like weird. a like a church lady, like a lady you would see at your church or something. I mean, she just seems very non Hollywood. It's so in Brainerd's garage. This is like your stereotypical inventing. I mean, you, you think of people starting businesses in their garage and building computers, and you know Steve Jobs and Wozniak and all these guys. I mean, this is like before they were it this is somebody building something in their garage we have all these beakers and all these this glassware and things are bubbling and all this hardware going on and uh professor brainerd's trying to create this something we don't really know what yet but mrs chatsworth enters and she has this like bell thing like on a stick these bunch of bells and she's playing here comes the bride uh, as she walks into the garage (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was so kind of bizarre. And so Brainer's taking notes and he says, just a minute as uh, Mrs. Chatsworth's trying to get him get, to get ready. And Miss Chatsworth scolds him and says that he ne- he needs to get married to this wonderful girl. As she begins to leave, uh, he notices that he put a minus instead of a plus sign on the blackboard. But the question is, why is Miss Chatsworth leaving? I don't <laughs> This is like my biggest like beef is like, why isn't every, cause you've got like Shelby's making fun of it and like Betsy and like per, you know, president Daggett, everybody's like mad that he's missed this wedding twice in a row. Why isn't everyone monitoring him around the clock to make sure he gets there? 
I mean, also, like, what is his problem? Like, why isn't he exactly. getting ready, like, earlier? Also oh, yeah. true. I had in my notes that he is way more irritating now than when I was a kid. Yes. Like, now it's like, dude, get get it together. Yeah. Everyone else around Betty is right. I mean, she does not. <laughs> third time, she needs to move on. And this guy is jerk. Just, I don't know. That's my first impression of this professor. I'm like, I'm, well, not, I mean, I'm already yeah. not happy with him. He's not absent-minded so about, like, doing science. He's, you know, selfish. (laughs) But she's supposed to make sure he gets there, but she does a terrible job. She leaves at a critical moment. She bails. Yeah, she totally bails. So he changes. I'm like, where's she going? What's she got to do? (laughs) Mm, Yeah, there's the real question. (laughs) That's another spinoff movie. (laughs) <laughs> so he adjusts his formula and the uh and we see everything start like you know the beakers start bubbling and sparking but beforehand everything had, had kind of bubbled up and failed so this time it's all bubbling up again and he's changed the formula and it's bubbling and bubbling on and then that's right as miss chatsworth pulls away the garage explodes and this is one of the, the the best scenes. The next, it cuts immediately to a telephone ringing with a close-up. <laughs> and we see Betsy's picture in the background. And it says, with a note that says, get married at 8.30. So Ms. Chatsworth puts this note out. And it's like it's on cardboard or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, yeah, she was writing it on like heavy stock. So <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's something that always stood out to me. Cause she like pins it on his like coat, uh, another note at some point, And it's like written on, <laughs> I don't, I don't know why that always stood out to me. It's like, she's writing notes on cardboard and like leaving them around <laughs> and pinning, like safety pinning them onto things. It's, it's so weird. I, you know, that'd be a great, uh, you know, viral thing to do is to start, like posting up get married 830 sharp on sharpies with cardboard and putting them up around town (laughs) so we're at the president daggett's house again and shelby gets one more jab in and says well third time's a charm and then betsy declares that she says it's three strikes and you're out Ah, and ah, then ah, roll of threes and yeah that's right Betsy doesn't have an escort home and asks Shelby if he would be so kind. And of course, he's happy to help. Man, so, he swoops it, right in too. Yeah, he just, he's yeah, like immediately. He's he's waiting at this wedding, like in the background, like 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 wringing his hands, like like hoping for this to happen. Yeah. It was just really he's a shark that smells blood in the water. Yeah, yeah. it's just like he's, a vulture. He's got this I mean, like cat that ate the canary grin on his face. Like he's so happy. Like she's so upset, and he's like, yeah. So back at Brainerd's garage, Charlie Brainerd's dog is waking him up by licking his face. And he's <laughs> confusing the dog licking him as Betsy, I think, wasn't he? Yeah, well, yeah. what is that? Yeah, yeah what's that about? <laughs> so that's a window into their world. lick his face every morning? <laughs> Good morning, honey. <laughs> I mean, I'm so assuming he, they're cohabitating. I mean, what's going on? So he gets up and sees all of his glassware is destroyed. All of his chemistry glassware has been, been, been ruined. And... All of a sudden, we hear this weird bubbling sound as this canister comes floating up off the ground and is hovering around. And I mean, I got to tell you, if I was in a room and I saw that, my, my, my reaction would not be to run over and pick it up and grab it. Yeah, stick your hands in it. <laughs> and uh, and I don't want to jump forward here, but in the background later on, we see, a, a, I think it's a nuclear um like a fallout shelter kind of a sign somewhere yeah. in the background. Yeah. It's kind of like so, a beginning to a Marvel movie. 
So it feels like, yeah, there's like this origin story getting ready to happen here. <laughs> Bruce Banner. So yeah. He grabs the canister and opens it, and like all this ooze, this black ooze starts like pouring out of it, which again is a huge red flag. Yeah, it's man, it's really like evocative, like gooey. Like, I don't know how they got it to do that. Like, when it, like, he opens it's like a pressure cooker and he takes yeah. off the lid and it all comes like oozing out. And then he kind of puts the lid back on and it kind of, I, I don't know, but it's like puffing up underneath. But I don't, I don't know how they did that, but it's really like icky. I wish I knew what it looked like in color because when they call, they, colorized this movie back in the 80s and they made it all like green yeah it was green wasn't it uh but i don't you know i don't know what it was like like actually in the studio because i always think of it as like black like rubber but who knows so he grabs a canister and he balls up uh some of this ooze that's coming out of it and balls it nice and tight and drops it and it starts bouncing and starts creating its own momentum every time it hits the floor it gets goes higher and faster and he says you know this is flying rubber he says, I'll call it Flubber. So we, we have the name now. <laughs> I think that this is weird because he says, you know, we got to figure out a way to control it. And he says, of course, he grabs a radioactive isotope to do so because, hey, it's the 1960s, right? Everyone's got isotopes sitting around their garage. Right. Meanwhile, yeah, I like, guess you've got a wedding to go to, dude. He's completely, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. still, yeah. It's, but it's, why does he have nuclear, <laughs> nuclear material sitting around? This <laughs> makes me think of, like, Back to the Future when they go back and they're like, well, it's not easy to come by in 1955. I'm like, apparently it is easy <laughs> to come by in 1950 or, <laughs> exactly. or whatever. That's right. He's just, like, setting gamma. He's like, oh, it's just sending out gamma rays. I'm like, well, that's not good. That's the Bruce <laughs> Banner, like you said. <laughs> And he's got no like protective equipment. He's just yeah. So he has this isotope and this little with this little uh, canister with a sliding door on it, and he's able to open and close the door with a uh, a little device he's rigged up, and it makes the canister float now, and he can control how high it goes and how low it goes, uh, for how many gamma rays, how much radioactive material he bombards the flubber with. So so Miss Chatsworth arrives again. And Brainerd's been working all night, and Brainerd discovers that he missed the wedding. But she comes in and she's like, "You need to get in. You need to get to the wedding. You've you've missed it, right, or something like that." Yeah, but he says he's yeah. It's it's supposed to be at eight thirty, and he's like, "It's like what time does he think it is?" He's like, "I got plenty of time," but he's like leaving himself like a half hour or yeah, something. Yeah, and like he's that. like covered in soot or whatever, like lead ashes or whatever it is <laughs> yeah kind of radioactive like, fallout yeah. radioactive material yeah <laughs> it's like, what are you doing you gotta plan out man you gotta take time well he's absent-minded it's in the title and so that's true he's not absent-minded jerk. about getting gamma rays so he's not worried jerk. at all that he's missed it because he's he's a just convinced that, that Betsy's going to be ecstatic when she finds out that he has discovered Flubber. So he immediately runs to President Daggett's office, and Betsy's there taking notes for President Daggett, who reveals that the college is in danger of defaulting on a loan that was held by an alumnus, Mr. Hawk. Well, I mean, if now you me, can just let explain me just... That, that he has invented Flubber, it's going to be fine. She'll be okay, right? right? 
But let yeah. me let me ask this. We've seen Medfield. Like we've seen uh, we had a little tour of Medfield in the opening credits. Medfield looks awfully awfully fancy. How are they at the risk of foreclosure? For how much? I can't even remember how much the loan is. But it's not like too terribly much even like back then. Like how is Medfield at the risk of foreclosure? It's really fancy. Yeah, I mean it's crazy cuz I mean they're we have some some friends of ours who are college students. And they were touring colleges, and they went to one, and they came back and said that the uh, the grounds weren't kept up, the, the paint was peeling off the windows, and the signs Whoa. were all faded. You know, that's a school that's that's hurting for money. Medfield, yeah, you're right. Medfield's not hurting. <laughs> this, no, this, this manicured, you know, uh, ridiculous campus so, and vibrant yeah. uh, athletic department, as we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. right. So. Mr. It would have been funny though. It would have been great though to show Medfield with like trash blowing across <laughs> the quad, <laughs> tumbleweeds, <laughs> like a trash can on fire. <laughs> so as uh, Brainerd arrives to the President Daggett's office, he's walking up the steps and everyone's pointing and laughing because the word's gotten out that he's missed the wedding for the third time. So Daggett is uh, dictating a letter to Mr. Uh, to Mr. Hawk. To, in a way to uh, trying to plead with him to extend the terms of the loan in the best interest of the college. So Brainerd begins miming to Betsy. And this is one of those, those moments I think we all kind of laugh about. And he's trying to explain to her what it is. And it's just this sort of awkward exchange where he's going flubber. And she's not like understanding it. And it just goes on and on. But he's saying flubber, 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 flubber. He's like standing out of view of Daggett, holding up this ball and like saying, Flubber, as if that explains anything. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. just a word. It's like, like, and like he's holding would, a ball. It's a word, A, it's a word he just made up. Yeah, it's like, he's looking at her like, it's Flubber, you idiot. Don't you understand? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> just like, no like way. I'm sorry I missed the wedding. Just yeah. saying yeah. Flubber. Yeah. He's, he's like, oh, there. you're hey. going to be so excited, yeah. Betsy, because I invented <laughs> Flubber. That makes it all better. So Betsy rebuffs his explanation, as you would imagine she would. Just and, throw uh, the freaking ball, man. Just <laughs> Right. That's all he had to do was bounce it right there. <laughs> so uh, as he begins to exit, one of the best characters in the whole movie busts through the door, oh, yeah. and Mr. Hawk arrives with his son Biff, and he barges in. There's a great pratfall because he catches, like, Bra they're trying to get Brainerd out the door. And let me say, uh, President Daggett gets, like, Brainerd in a mean, like, like locks his arm behind his back, like gets That's him. That's right. Like, yeah. And he's holding Only. a thing of flowers in the, uh, in the other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're like pushing him out. And then Hawk comes through the door and just like wipes out Brainerd behind the door. That was a nice little pratfall. Hawk is mad and he busts in because quote unquote, Nettie the nut who is they're referring to as Brainerd as flunking his boy Bifford or Biff. <laughs> <laughs> and, it the and here's the crazy part is that, you know, Brainerd's like, hey, I'm, I'm a professor. I have integrity. I, I, he took the test and got his name. Mis he misspelled the name of the college on his test. He deserves to flunk. And the president's like, no, 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 no. We can, you know, we can break NCAA rules. We can, you know, shift grades around. It's no, it's no big deal. You know, we need him to play in the, in the big game coming up against Rutland University, of course. It's a big game. Now let me, I've got, first, I got to say, uh, because when he's dictating the letter to Hawk, 
uh, and it's the loan is taken through the old old Lang Syne loan company, of course, which never fails <laughs> to like be funny to me for whatever reason. That like all of Hawk's companies are like the old Lang Syne like repo company or whatever it is. <laughs> I, I, well, yeah. I love that. And uh, Alonzo Hawk with this actor Keenan Wynn is going to be in several different franchises that we will probably eventually get to. Yeah, he franchise hops. Uh, yeah, and he's yeah, if there is a Disney cinematic universe, he is a crucial player in it. Oh, he's yeah. so good yeah. too. He is I great. love this Hawk. character so much. He just chews up the senior when he's in out there, man. I love Hawk. He's my favorite character in the whole movie. So yeah. when when Brainerd refuses to change the grade, Hawk storms out over a matter of $500,000. So Medford over a matter of $50. It's pretty much, I mean, I'm going, you know, I guess in today's money, 500000 is kind of, you know, you sneeze at that. But back in the 60s, man, that was a lot Wait of Wait a second. Cool. Biff Tannen, Biff Hawk. Think Whoa. Of that. Whoa. Man. But let me take a moment to say that, uh, so Hawk is mad because uh, he's flunked uh, Biff, his son, played by Tommy Kirk, in his bow tie. And the, you know, the effect being that he will not be able to play in the big upcoming basketball game. So let's talk for a second that Tommy Kirk is supposed to be the big basketball star upon whom everything depends, because I find that to be a leap. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a little bit. Yeah. I mean, unless he's got an amazing outside shot and handle yeah. i don't he just see people off the dribble <laughs> he's yeah. like steph curry yeah he can create his own <laughs> shot. it doesn't yeah he does not seem very athletic that's not the only sport he's good at right i mean we'll find that out later yeah we'll find in in, in later films but i just love that like he's like the prime athlete is is tommy it's, kirk it's that's a reach stuff. a reach so hawk's in his car now he's mad He's mad that his son can't play in the big game. He's going to foreclose on this college. And Biff is just, just like, Dad, I can't believe you're going to tear down and put up low-income housing at your <laughs> beloved institution. And, I mean, I, I'm watching this, and, and it reminds me of another I – mean, I don't want to get too political here, but we're going to dance around this a little bit. It reminds me of another um, business mogul who had a father who did a lot of real estate in low-income housing in New York. And where are we now? But we'll just, we're going to let that slide. But I found a lot of parallels here. <laughs> so. I will point out that in in a later movie, uh, Alonzo Hawk builds a giant eight shaped tower called Hawk Towers. So, so let let oh, let, let that marinate a little bit. <laughs> That's Bifford so. Baron. Oh, oh, <laughs> think about it. Think about it. There's a there's a lot of little uh, social commentary going on here with Alonzo Hawk because he's he gives this speech about he's shutting down the little college because it's the age of the supermarket and it's like shooting a horse with a broken leg to put the college out of its misery. <laughs> <laughs> oh oh so yeah, good. I mean he is a treat, and you can tell. I mean, just the writing for him is great, and uh, there's just so so many great lines he has. So one of the things that he does, that Hogg does, is he has one of his mooks check on the point spread of the ball game because he knows that Biff is going to be like out of the game, like the star player. So he puts $10,000 on the ball game. And my question is, what kind of betting market is there for college basketball in Medfield? 
that he'd strap in $10,000 in 1961 money on Medfield College. And who would bet on Medfield? Who is terrible without Biff anyway? I mean, the <laughs> idea is like Biff is the only good player. So if everyone else is terrible, then still, why are, why are you going to uh, bet on him? And why would Biff, how would Biff make that much of a difference? How would Biff make that much of a difference? That's I mean, all yeah, I'm and we, we see, I mean, we'll get into it in a minute, but we see what Rutland looks like and it makes it even funnier. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, just, it's just awful. But. Like who is meeting that $10,000 bet is my question. Like who yeah. else is in on this? Well, who is willing that, to take yeah. that? Yeah. So there's a good quote here from Hawk at the very end. Though. He says, there's an old saying, it's an ill wind that doesn't blow a few bucks into the coffers of the old Lang Syne loan company. <laughs> and I just. <laughs> like, <laughs> so good. <laughs> Yeah. And that pretty much wraps up Act 1 right there. And we're heading into Act 2. Charlie, I've got an idea. Why don't we fly over and drop in on that certain someone, huh? That lovely, adorable Betsy of mine. Oh, won't she be happy, sweet Betsy of mine? When we take her flying, that Betsy of mine, she'll hug me and tell me she's not really sore. That lovely, All right, so back at the garage, Brainerd is explaining in detail how his Model T with Flubber in the engine is going to fly. And we see the importance of having a dog, Charlie, because Charlie is this huge plot device now that he's able to to kind of give dumb explanations to what he's doing to somebody so that the viewer can understand. Otherwise, I mean, there's no way they could have gotten made these points. So he goes into, he's talking about how he's going to, you know, turn the gamma rays this way and he's going to open up the, the gamma rays and make the car fly. And then when he turns it this way, it goes left and right. And he's doing all these modifications to this car and he's explaining it to his dog. I love, they took the time to like figure this all out. And they're like, no, we're going to put that in. We're going to explain like how it's not looks like it's a flying car. They and I think like when I was a kid, I was like, that makes perfect sense. That all makes perfect sense to me. So after flying around town, so Brainerd takes the car out. He goes flying around town and he decides, hey, I'm going to go impress Betsy with my car. So he flies over to Betsy's house. And this is kind of like an iconic scene, you know, when he's yeah. flying in the air. So they're doing, I mean, the backup, I mean, they're doing some serious, like, special effects here. I mean, they have a full Model T up on wires, and they're selling this thing all the way around, all these props on the soundstage. I mean, I would love to have seen what that rig looked like to get, make that car. Yeah, well, what they did was, they. I mean, they built this car out of, uh, you know, really lightweight stuff. Like, they took the engine out and replaced a lot of the heavy parts with, like, you know, really lightweight stuff. Just like Ned and, Brainerd uh, did. Yeah, and uh, ju- oh, yeah. and uh, used uh, piano wire. They had this huge, huge like crane rig with piano wire and hung wow. it up. Wow, yeah, that's crazy. So he arrives at Betsy's house and rings the doorbell. 
<laughs> I thought this was great. Ashton answers the door and he callously refers to him as old man. <laughs> it's just like, I just think that's an insult that need, we need to bring back. I just, I mean, I, I, I just thought that was great. And he says, you, you stand aside, old man. <laughs> he comes walking out with Betsy. <laughs> and man, this is awkward too. This, this is a bad is look for everybody yeah. involved. <laughs> she doesn't want to see him and he's like not listening to her. It's yeah, it's bad. So it's like it's like this like like awkward domestic incident takes place in the front lawn. Yeah, like, they're both like, like tugging her in opposite directions. Yeah, like I mean, it's starting good. to get physical, and it's yeah, it's 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 not good. So, so she leaves with Ashton and goes to the uh, the basketball game. And here is like one of the climactic moments of the movie, uh, or at least of the. At, at this point, so Medfield versus Rutland game, and we're treated to some r- truly horrible basketball as uh, the comically large Rutland team. So everybody on the team is what? How how tall do you think they are? Well, they're like real basketball size because Rutland is they use the USC basketball team, so they're like real basketball players. So they're all six, 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 and taller, probably. Yeah, probably. Was Medfield like jockeys or something? Because they look <laughs> tiny. Well, what they were that? all they were trained dancers. That's so right. So they were yeah, probably so they, yeah, probably, probably that five size. foot two. Yeah, five foot yeah. four. I mean, not, I, no one there could have was, was taller than five six. On the, on you the get, Medfield, you team. get Biff on that court though. The game's going to yeah. change around. Yeah, yeah. But if Biff goes out there, then it's I mean makes yeah. a big difference. <laughs> he's he's not a he's not a giant in size, but his game is. Giant. I mean, it's like they can't even like dribble or do anything. I mean, it's like they have no skills at basketball. And a reminder that this was before the three point line too. So I'm not sure exactly how Biff or how he was going to rack up all those. Maybe points. he was like he was, a sneaky a good offensive yeah. rebounder too, or defensive <laughs> rebounder. He's a tough little nut. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think I, I mean, Andy, you played basketball in high school. So what we're seeing here is a team that I mean, and I put down in my notes. This team clearly has never seen a backdoor cut in their life because that's all uh, Rutland is doing is just one backdoor cut after another on them. I mean, what was your take, Andy? Yeah, it was just this. This was garbage. I hated this scene. By the way, I didn't like any of this. <laughs> I was like, this is awful <laughs> because it did really? not make any sense. Yeah, I I really did not like this. Up and I'll, I'll say this, up until this point, I've still not really. I, I've liked a few things. I'm like, okay, this has been better already than Gus, and it's already been better than Boatniks. And so I'm watching this, and I'm like, okay, this at least has a coherent story throughout the whole piece that just kind of makes sense to me. But then it just it's just so silly, and so it becomes obnoxious to me. So I know Betsy's Betsy's sitting there with Ashton <laughs> in, the, in the stands and she's just like exa- exasperated. Like her poor team is playing so bad and Brainerd arrives and I, and I put down on my notes. It's like watching bad Harlem Globetrotter moves. So, I mean, even the <laughs> stuff they're doing is like, I mean, the, the Rutland team is like spinning the ball on one finger and like holding it up over everyone's head and just yeah. taunting everybody. The Washington generals. Of, and it's like the Washington yeah. generals. Exactly. Yeah. It was so, it was so bad. I mean, I'm, I'm with you, Andy. I mean, I, I was sitting there watching this going, uh, you know, but I, I know my kids would, would think that's hysterical. Though. They would eat that. Yeah. Like when so. I was a kid, I thought it was hilarious. I, uh, yeah. Um, so Betsy gets annoyed. Brainerd sits behind her and, uh, cause the whole time Betsy's like 
upset. I mean, Ashton's like dancing on, on Medford College's grave, and it's just annoying. Again, Ashton is the worst. So, yeah. Well, I had in my notes why again it's Betsy with Shelby. Why is she <laughs> in the game with him? Yeah, that, that really it doesn't make sense because they're rivals. It doesn't, yeah. And it's and the era of the being uh, a schmuck. Yeah, he is. It's, so as Brainerd sits down, I think this is Ashton gets a, another jab because it's late as usual, aren't you, Brainerd? I mean, just so. I don't know. I think it's fair. I think it's fair game. I still think Nutty Ned's a jerk, and so I think it's fine that Shelby's giving it the business. Give it to him. Yeah. You're probably right. Yeah, he's I, definitely I, I, I earned it at this point. <laughs> So should uh, Shelby deliver that? So they start trading jabs now. Like Shelby and and um, and Brainerd are, are like going back and forth. And Shelby says another a jab at uh, Brainerd about not uh, making the star player eligible and flunking him. And then Shelby qu- quips, you know, we're, we're much more realistic about these things at Rutland, which Brainerd responds, and I quote, I understand you pay your players more than you pay your English teachers. To which Shelby says, snaps back, that's ridiculous. I get twice as much. I really don't care to discuss this. And he quickly changes the subject. Sticking <laughs> so, it to the man. So yeah, so we find out that Rutland's paying their players. I mean, it's just, it's it's funny. It's social yeah. commentary. When I was watching this, though, I, I was laughing because Medfield's getting beat so bad. They keep showing the coach. And he just keeps, like, pulling his hair out. He just reminds me of old Gil on, like, The Simpsons. Like, oh, Gil. <laughs> I just remember when, when this was first, like, when I was watching this as a kid, they don't, like, really clearly say who the coach is at the first. They just keep showing this guy, like, getting stressed out and making weird faces and another guy who's the assistant coach. But then later they show it at halftime. But it's kind of bizarre. Yeah, it's just this random... And he's got like the sort of like greasy hair of the era. And he yeah. does that thing where he's like got it, his hair in like both hands and like pulls it out. So it's like tufted out of the top of his head. It's, <laughs> it's a look. It really is. So we're treated to more bad basketball. And Shelby laughs that Medfield players need elevator heels to give them a lift. And then Brainer says elevator heels. And he, and he immediately jumps up and leaves. And this is weird. This, he goes into the locker room and he grabs all the spare shoes that were all lying around the locker room and takes them back to his house and uh, starts ironing on flubber to the heels. And then he comes back when they, the and they rooms. show like all these, all these, uh, shoes, he would like finish it and he'd throw it off and there would be all these shoes bouncing around the dog. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, because players take their shoes off at halftime and lay around the locker room. Well, you got to have an extra pair just in case. But yeah, we'll get, we'll get to that. So he comes back, and the players all come pouring in at halftime. And and Professor Brainer sneaks in, and the players all start taking their shoes off. Which, like like you said, Andy, I mean, you played high school basketball. Did you ever take your shoes off at halftime? I don't think so. I don't, can't remember ever seeing anyone do that. Unless there's just like a problem with your shoe. But yeah, that's just ridiculous. The, the, the whole team I, would take their shoes off. Yeah. But they're I mean, like lying down though. They're like draped exactly. over like the furniture. Yes. That's what was more disturbing to me than taking the shoes off. It's just they're just laying over there. Like they're just completely wiped. Well, maybe they are because, I mean, Rutland's really giving it to them. So the um, coach sees Raynard sneaking around. He says, oh, is your conscience bothering you? And Brainerd says, "No, uh, I'm, I'm just. I want to give you guys a quick pep talk." And he sort of he talks to them about you know they need to get out there and fight and you know and and 
they'll bounce. and they'll you know bounce and they'll get a lift out of the second half and and just this you know kind of quirky corny pep talk. So the ball tips at for the second half, which I mean, was there a rule change because you don't tip off at the start the second half? But you used to with like dead balls before uh, before the alternating possession. Before alternating uh, possession era, okay. I actually looked this up because I I wasn't sure, and the alternating possession is like really recent. Like I didn't realize like just how recent it was. I just wanted to point out the irony that the Nutty Ned is is okay with cheating at basketball, but he's not okay <laughs> with his academic cheating and anything like that. Ooh, so, that's a good point. Well, that is uh, a good point. Flubber. Flubber. It's all because of flubber. It's all because of flubber. Juicy exactly. with flubber. So they tip the ball. The ball goes up, and we and we have, and thanks to Michael, we understand that because and Jeff because of the alternating possession. That's that's correct. Uh, <laughs> the, the the midfield player bounces straight to the ceiling, off the jump, and midfield continues the to just bounce around, and they're intercepting balls. And I mean, what was your take here, guys? <sighs> yeah, I, I, again, I, I really hated this scene because they're they're bouncing everywhere, and the, these dancers. Now that I know that they are dancers, I mean, they've got their feet spread apart, like doing their pirouettes or whatever you call it, and it just looked so awful. It didn't even look realistic, as if they were trying to, if they're just like a regular basketball player, and they just happened to be able to bounce really high. It was just silly. Well, do you have any background on the on on the scene, Michael? I mean, how were they? How they created all those yeah. effects? Well, obviously, this was like the big, like I don't know what you would call it, but the, you know, the big action of the action movie. scene. Yeah, the big action scene. Uh, it took two months of pre-production and then took two weeks to film. Uh, like I said, they had the USC basketball team and then a team of trained dancers. Uh, the the sequence was the brainchild of Don DeGrati, who was a story guy at the studio who had used to be in animation. So you can see a lot of like the animation influence is definitely there. Uh, he came up with the idea, and then they nearly scrapped it because they couldn't figure out how to do it. Uh, Robert Stevenson, who was the director, didn't think it was necessary, but the producer, Bill Walsh, did. So he went to a guy named Arthur Vitarelli, who was an assistant director at the studio. And he used to be an ice skater and had used piano wire in his act to like lift himself up off the ice to do all these like dangerous tricks. So he came up with the idea of suspending the players from piano wire. And so Walsh brought him on the, the movie as a second unit director. Uh, so he directed this whole sequence and he worked with uh, Bob Matty, who was a effects guy at the studio uh, to develop a new system to suspend the actors. So each player wore harness that was made of heavy denim and leather and had two wires attached by universal joints that could swivel in any direction. So a, a joint on each side. And there was a huge metal device overhead that was raised and lowered by a pneumatic ram that could move <laughs> at a variable speed. So instead of just being like on or off, it could like ramp up and ramp down. And there was this huge grid overhead that they like could pull them up and down. But you couldn't move them. They did a lot of work to like figure out like how safely you could move them, like speed up and speed down, you know. And then compared that to like what the actual speed of a person would be if they were like somehow actually jumping like that, you know, uh, with flubber. And so to like make those speeds match, to make it look at least a little like more realistic physically, 
uh, a lot of the action was shot at 16 frames per second, some at 18 and some at 20. And they kind of mixed it up so you wouldn't like catch on quite as easily. And so for all this stuff that was uh, under crank like that, the background actors would have to slow down their movements so that when the film was sped up, it would look natural. So they use a lot of different methods and then use like editing to like cut between like the different methods to make it so you didn't like quite catch on quite as quickly. So that's how they did it. So I'll point out that Medfield is down 46 to three at, at the start of the second half <laughs> and they go on a 44 point run <laughs> and it ends with the ball being batted back and forth. The players are bouncing you know, through the rafters and the clock is winding down. And finally they throw it towards the other goal uh, as the clock expires, the player ball goes in, and then the player falls in through the basket following the ball, and they win forty-seven to forty-six. And they actually dropped that guy through. That was a that was an actor, and uh, he wanted to do the stunt, and so they like actually like dropped wow. him through. I mean, he was on wires, <laughs> but they dropped him through the thing, and then later we're like, that could have been dangerous, I guess, but it worked. So, but Ned's like a jerk. He's sitting back there smacking Shelby. With yeah, like a program or something. He's like, ah, this is like boom, the boom, era boom. of the giant pom pom. There's many giant pom poms flying around. That's right. <laughs> but he's like grabbing Shelby by like the shoulders and then like just like shaking him. Yeah. So Brainerd quickly tells Betsy that he, it was his flubber is the reason they won, and she scoffs at him and scolds him and says, you know, you're trying to you know take credit for this. And Shelby immediately uh, leaves with Betsy and, and both of them are, and he fails again. So it's just like, why is she, why, for, you know, again, why is she looking at these two guys to begin with? <laughs> so. Well, he's moving in fast on her and it becomes apparent that like he proposed to her. Yeah. Right. And why is she considering that? Are they the only two single men? So Shelby takes her to the house and he proposes to her. She's like, you know, you know, have you made your, you made up your mind? And like, it's just, I mean, it's been what less than 24 hours since her, 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 her last engagement, you know, fell apart. And now he's already, you know, trying to get her to marry him. So it's yeah. a different time, man. Different time. It's, different time, it's not yeah. like, you know, like Miss America, where if like the number one pick can't do the job, then like the number two pick gets to like go up. It's that's not how it works. So Are they like she, the only two dudes in town? She says that she's going to give him, she'll give him an answer tomorrow. And then he tries to go in for the kiss. And this is good. Cause and then she ducks him and let, makes him kiss her on the cheek. Uh, so, yeah, classic. Yeah. so yeah. But then he does the, like, I, I know what your answer is going to be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, let's be real. Is she that big of a prize? She's kind of a stick in the mud. Really? <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> she, she makes bad decisions already. I mean, we, we clearly, yes. So Shelby hops into his station wagon, and this is this is kind of a funny, but also a pretty dark scene here, because we see the station wagon, his station wagon, which um, is a 1960 Mercury commuter station wagon. It was a, it's a pretty nice, it's a collector's car now. They're kind of hard to come by, but he pulls away, and we see the headlights of the of the Model T flip on, and he pulls out. That's and, a cool shot too. It is a cool shot, I'll, I'll say. And then there's like a, some some really good music here as well. And he starts talking to his dog, and he's like, you know, I'm a reasonable man, but you know, everyone gets to a breaking point. And you're like, what in the world is he getting ready to do to this guy? <laughs> like, I mean, 
So, like I said, I think I put my notes. This is getting a little dark here. Yeah. See, so, this is where it. Uh, this is where I started enjoying it. I'm like, all right, this now, is this where is good. <laughs> yeah, I, now it just got interesting. So a high-speed, dangerous chase starts to ensue as Brainerd is flying overhead in his Model T and, and bouncing on, on, on the roof of his 1960 Mercury commuter. Yeah, and they and it, and it has all kinds of shots, too, with, uh, you know, the, it right on top of the actual car and then the model of it flying further away. And it is just a bizarre-looking scene. I mean, the... Uh, Shelby's face is all dark and looks really, really weird. Yeah, the way they lit that was—I mean, I was—I was noticing that too. It was really bizarre and kind of—I mean, it, it just—he comes across as being crazed and insane the way they lit it. And, I always um, think of this shot when when I think about this movie because this freaked me out. Well, especially when we were kids, they showed the colorized version of this on TV. I mentioned they did a colorized version of this and, you know, colorization in the eighties was really bad, like really, really, really bad. And so colorization of this made it even more terrifying. It's just really creepy. And they actually did, they like put him in dark makeup so that it would bring out the whites of his eyes and the effect it's horrifying. It's like his yeah. eyes are like silver they're like really silvery and, and his teeth too. When I, when you can his see his teeth. Yeah. 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 And the, and the quick edits, so the quick edits and make it also look very like Alfred Hitchcock kind of stuff, you know, yeah. it reminded me yeah. of, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Well, yeah. a funny thing about it is, you know, they, for all the, like the, the flying scenes with the model T, they use a combination of like, like crane shots. And then they'll use like, they had a model that they would do model shots. And then they do like the, um, like matte, like sodium vapor, whatever the matte process was they used at the time. But a lot of the background plates that they use and a lot of like when Shelby's like wheeling around like corners and stuff, uh, all that stuff is on like the, at the Disney studio. So it's like when, when Shelby's like running over the fire hydrant or whatever, wheeling around the corner, he's going around the old animation building and uh, when uh, Brainer's like flying around, you can see like the old like lumber mill and like central shops, like a bunch of the old buildings at the studio. So they just like went outside and like filmed, you know, filmed the background yeah. plates around. Later, the you can even see the uh, bottom of the water tower, the, the iconic yeah. water tower. Yeah, yeah, totally. So the, the chase ends with a head on collision with a police car, which. Well, it does the like where the front, yeah, the front ends go together and then like lift up. It's a classic. Yeah, the classic, yeah, comedy uh, hitting each other. No, no major damage is done to the cars. That's, that's the other ridiculous part. And of course, the cop spills his coffee. He gets out, yeah. and, uh, and, and in the in the shadows, we see Brainerd back there, like like laughing and gleefully watching Shelby get into trouble with the with the law. And uh, he pulls out as they're trying to uh, get uh, Shelby to do a breathalyzer test, which I didn't even know they had breathalyzer tests back then, but evidently they did. Yeah, I looked so. it up and uh, like when that even happened. But let me say that Shelby blowing the balloon for the breathalyzer is really disturbing because they're like trying to cram the balloon in his mouth and get him to blow. And he's like fighting back and yelling. But then they then the cops like blow and Shelby starts. <laughs> but his like eyes are like bugging out. It's really, really disturbing. So Brandon he's all like sweaty. Yeah, no, it's so. Ugh. 
Yeah. So Brainerd pulls out in his Model T, and the cop you know, said, hey, you got the old Model T running again. He's like, yeah, you having trouble tonight? And he, the cop makes some reference to, yeah, we always have a couple of 502s after the Rutland game, you know. <laughs> so everyone's getting out, getting loaded, and driving around town. And All right, so a, a fun little fact. So we've established in the intro that I'm a kind of an Andy Griffith show uh, connoisseur. Uh, and so one of the things that I noticed was – Police officer Hanson, who's the main, who's the officer that gets the coffee spilled on him, he was in the Andy Griffiths episode of the the family visit, and he played Uncle Ollie. And then the other officer, Officer Kelly, was uh, he played many different parts on the Andy Griffiths show, but the, probably the one he's most well known for is Cy Hutchins, uh, who was who owned Jimmy the Goat in the Loaded Goat episode, where the goat, oh, had the goat which is a great oh. episode. That's a good one. Oh, yeah. But there's a few more that uh, we'll kind of encounter as we go, as we continue. That's great. And that wraps up Act Two. folks we're coming down the home stretch what is going to happen now will brainerd get back together with betsy will flubber save the day is rutland or pardon me not rutland college is medfield college going to be raised and replaced with low-income housing by, <laughs> by the old Langsign loan company so it begins in hawk's mansion as he's mad because his henchmen can't find out why Medfield College won and was able to jump so high. And Biff just walks in and says, hey, yeah, and Eddie the Nut was in the locker room at halftime, giving everybody a pep talk. Which I just love that one of the goons, uh, one of his answers is, if only... If if we could only grab off one of the boys, we could give him a saliva test. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a great compliment. line. Like, the guy's read is so great, too. Of course, so Hawk is immediately intrigued by this pep talk. You know, you know what all does he know? And Biff begins chomping on this apple uh, to the disgust of his father. And he takes the apple and throws it outside. <laughs> Which one is that about? <laughs> That's right. It's like, give me that apple. He throws it outside and sees this Model T flying around. And Biff is casually points out that it's, oh, that's just netting the nut out flying his Model T. Big deal. So. But I mean, he says that. I mean, he says it that casually, but then realizes how big of a deal it is. I mean, it's right. The, uh, yeah. He's, <laughs> like, it's just sort of this, this gag. Yeah. Right. So Biff says, well, yeah. Nettie the Nut's been talking about this new kind of energy. He's been going on about it in class. So they immediately put the puzzle together that he has discovered something and he's out flying it around in his Model T. So Hawk now barges into the garage and says he wants to rebuild Medford College uh, after he tears it down. <laughs> he's still going to tear it down. But after I tear it down, I'm going to rebuild it and make it better. Uh, it looked pretty good to begin with in the opening sequence. But hey, Yeah, really? Me. What are you going to do? Yeah, so how are you going to make it better? So Brainerd, sensing something is afoot, is skeptical. And Hawk says the money, uh, the money to pay off all of this is coming from a scientific breakthrough. 
So finally, Hawk says uh, he saw the car flying around. Brainerd immediately realizes uh, that Hawk has figured out what's going on. I just want to say, I, I at this point, I'm actually pulling for Hawk versus <laughs> everybody else because I'm like, oh, this guy's interesting. This is this. I'll enjoy. This. He knows what he's. He knows what he wants. He's on it. Yeah. I just love, uh, he has another great line here where uh, Brainer's like, well, yeah, well, I'm going to call the president. And Hawk says, Daggett, he don't cut any ice. (laughs) (laughs) And then Brainerd says, no, I'm talking about the president of the United States. And uh, and then he kind of roughs up Hawk a little bit and throws him out. A lot of physicality in this movie. Yeah, that's not how you solve problems. Hawk is mad now that... That his plan to try to exploit Brainerd is not working. He rides back to his mansion, and Biff simply suggests they they switch cars. Why don't we just g- grab another Model T and, and and swap him out? And then he'll look like an idiot. And um, I love that too, because then you know Hawk's like, "Oh, hey, Biff, you're all right." Yeah, he gets like all me. impressed by him all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. right. you got a little bit of your mother in you. He <laughs> takes a stab at his, at his wife. That's yeah. But before that, there's there's a great line because he's he's mad that Brainer's like turning it into Washington and like they're all going to be descending. He says, "By tomorrow, this place will be swarming with sharpies." <laughs> <laughs> what does that sharpies. even mean? <laughs> I don't I don't even know. So yeah, that's another term we need to bring back. I basically just write down everything Alonzo Hawk says because it's all gold. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, man. He's so good. He's such a good feeling. He's like, you know, it, it reminds me of, he, he's like, who's, gosh, the guy that played uh, Snape. Oh, yeah. Alan, oh, yeah. Alan Rickman. Yeah. He's, he's like Rickman in the Robin Hood movie. You remember how you're like, I just like that guy better than I do oh, Robin Hood. Oh, yeah. That's true. Yeah. That's yeah. what it reminds me of. So Brainer decides he's going to call the White House. So he picks up the phone and gets the switchboard. Uh, and the switchboard is less than amused by his discovery. Brainerd suggests a host of different branches of government that could benefit from flubber, one of which is the agriculture department. The switchboard operator goes, oh, great. And then <laughs> immediately passes but the, the first guy he gets to, it's not a switchboard guy. It's a sp- the guy's like special assistant to the president. It's like, how did he get that far? Right. How did he get... How did he get through to that guy? Yeah, and how he gets to agriculture is they're like trying to push him away to the least desirable place. They're like, "Oh, agriculture, here you go." And I think yeah, there's a lot of there's sticking it to the man here. Right. There's a lot of sticking it to the man. So he switches into the agriculture when Brainerd says that he's uh, that he wants to give the flubber to the agriculture department. Again, the agriculture department's like, ah, I don't think so. And Brainerd says, we can do it for a lot of things. You can use it for the defense department. And he goes, oh, great. And so he passes them off to the Pentagon. So we're talking about presidents. We're talking about presidents here. So this is movie came out. It was 1961. Is Kennedy. That right? Yeah. Kennedy. So Kennedy, yeah. Been, so. Well, I mean, I guess the, yeah. I guess Chowder. Chowder. <laughs> flubber. Flubber. Was, yeah, we got to get this flubber. We got to get this was, flubber. <laughs> yeah, unless it was like early 61. Then it'd been right. like what, Eisenhower? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. It would have been the handover. Why to get the flubber. <laughs> you know Kennedy would have been behind flubber. Oh, yeah. he would have jumped all over it. Yeah, there's no question. Get the flubber and do the other things. <laughs> so... A meeting is taking place in the with the army, the navy, and the air force, and I think this is, to me, one of the funnier scenes here. So they're they're 
commenting on the new spirit of cooperation within the, the branches of, of the army, of the military. And they quip that there's never really been any differences between them to begin with. And it's just newspaper guff is what they called it. So, I mean, I know a little bit about it. I mean, I always, I grew up with family members in the military and the, you know, the army and the Navy and the Marines, you know, kind of laugh and jab back and forth at each other. I'm guessing post-war when this came out, it was really a sort of at a heightened level. That's the only thing I could, I could take from it. So there's a lot of gags. Oh, that's a good that. point. Like maybe yeah. they're fighting for funding. Like I wondered if it was like some super topical joke of the era, cause they make a big deal about yeah. like each of them are like trying to like secretly like get around the other and like outdo each other. And, like no, the spirit of cooperation is is there's nothing to these rumors. So yeah, I it had to have been like something that was in the news at the time because they like lean into it really heavily. Yeah, they, and one of them, and one of them. So one, I guess the Navy Admiral. I think he's played by the I don't know the actor's name, but it's Mister Drysdale from the Beverly Hillbillies. Uh, yeah, and then um, then the other one, I think it's the the general from the Air Force. Uh, that's another Andy Griffith show reference. That's Dr. Breen from who does the sermon in the sermon for today when they're, um, they're all sitting there. Yes. And you know, he comes to town and they're like, what's your hurry and all that. Yeah. It tells them to take it easy. Right? Exactly. That guy. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Each of those guys is like a really like a, that guy who like, you know, you know him from somewhere, even if you can't tell from where. Yeah. So an aide walks in and, hands a note to the ch- uh, to the chair of the meeting and says a professor Brainerd is on the phone the aide says that he may be related to congressman Brainerd who who chairs the appropriations committee which causes the general's ears to all perk up <laughs> but i love good- the line here yes. it's such a great line congressman Brainerd swings a lot of lead <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, gosh, I'd love to use that line someday. Man, that really dude swings a lot of lead. (laughs) The meeting chair agrees to take the call and mentions out loud that Flubber is a sort of anti-gravity invention or something to which the generals are all, all, their ears immediately start perking up now. And uh, so they all start secretly arranging to travel to Medfield College behind each other's backs while he's on the phone. And the uh, chair of the uh, meeting kind of dismisses Brainerd and hangs up. So back at the house, Brainerd's mad because nobody seems to be interested in his his flubber. And Miss Chatsworth gives him a little bit of a pep talk. (laughs) Nobody's interested in my flubber. (laughs) (laughs) So he's just sort of sitting there kind of, you know, moping around his house and and she's like, you know, you need to go fight for Betsy. You need to go to this dance. And so he starts talking about how he can't dance like, um, like Ashton. Isn't doesn't he? Isn't that that he's? Uh, yeah, because uh, Shelby has an. Uh, what is he called? Shelby Ashton, the ballroom beast. That's right. Oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, he has a reputation. I bet he swings a lot of lead too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, about, about. he cuts a lot of ice so, too. <laughs> the brainer decides that he's going to put Flubber on his shoes, similar to how what he did with the basketball team, and he's going to go down there and dance. So he arrives. But at the you dance got and- another good line from Mrs. Chatsworth when she's like, "Even a chimpanzee will fight for his mate." <laughs> <laughs> That's what inspires Brainerd to like step up. So he arrives at the dance and he brings his Model T. Biff and his dad are waiting to switch cars. So Brainerd parks his Model T and, and walks inside and then puts the, his flubber shoes on and starts immediately bouncing around. I mean, and this is 
to me, this is some of the some physical acting here because he's having to like actually. I mean, there's no wires I can tell in, the, in this scene. He's like bouncing his legs and and and. and yeah. I had written down it was it's really good like physical like pratfall acting when he puts on his flubber shoes because like I mean like you said he's he's doing that all himself like making his leg bounce and stuff and then goes like flying into the coats or whatever it's pretty good so he goes out and starts doing a mambo on the dance floor and it's it's again it's it's flubber with shoes so yeah just like the meanwhile I'm like but. <laughs> the generals arrive and again we get another gag they all call a taxi none of them notice that they're there yet and they all climb in the, in the same taxi and they're all in it together and then they say we need to go to mr the professor brainerd's house and uh yeah. and they all kind of give each other looks like oh you guys figured it out too oh <laughs> and <clears throat> luckily it's a small town so like the taxi driver knows where brainerd is knows where yeah. to take him so Brainerd's on the dance floor now and he sweeps Betsy away from Shelby and starts to bounce and jump. And it's just sort of this awkward to me. It felt awkward that the the drummer's like riffing with him, you know. He's just like <laughs> doing The guy these... doing the drum fills cracks me up. <laughs> yeah, he's doing his drum fills and stuff. It's really bizarre. Well, and uh And again, it's like what the way to impress Betsy is to dance with her by dragging her around and jumping over her and like Kind of yeah. like mauling her a little bit, and then just <laughs> jumping up and down by herself. That's what chimpanzees Shelby do. Shelby can't I guess. do this, can he? <laughs> That's right. Who's the ballroom beast now? He just keeps doing these like weird. I'm. I've always been obsessed with like these weird little moves he does, and like these like sort of like because they get like this sort of jungle drum thing going, and he's doing these like you know moving his head from side to side, and then you know turning his hands like around each other i don't know i don't even know what you call the moves but all these all these weird like little moves and stuff it's so strange and, and yeah goes, what's the goal he goes flying up into the air and, and gets tangled up in these balloons that are hanging from the ceiling and starts like swinging around trying to get out and then he gets or and then he gets tangled up in the trapeze that's up there too as well if i'm not mistaken so there's like you yeah. know the, the uh for like the gymnasts and everyone starts singing the man in the flying trapeze while he's like struggling to get loose. It's just, and like the students have been cheering on, cheering him on this whole time. They're like, yeah, professor go professor. Yeah. That'll, you know, that'll show them. So they're into it. Yeah. So outside Hawk is there and uh, he's getting ready to leave after switching the cars. And uh, he hears a lot of commotion inside and decide and sees the generals who are arriving and says, let's stick around and see what happens. So Brainerd walks out and shows the, them the model T and it doesn't work obviously because it's been switched. So he opens the hood to check it and a bunch of birds come flying out. Which was, And then the generals look inside the engine bay and it's, you see a hamster wheel spinning around and the generals leave in disgust and she'll be quote Shakespeare again. And Betsy realizes that she's made a huge mistake and goes to Brainerd because he's been embarrassed and she feels sorry for him. Uh, and, uh, so, but yeah, like, is- uh, I mean, well, whatever I give up. It just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. It's like, <laughs> right. why would that be the thing that makes her like all of a sudden just forgive everything and be like, yes, flubber. And it is like his logic ends up being right. Like once she somehow understands Flubber, even though she doesn't, she's still not seen it, but it's like 
Flubber somehow makes it okay. Like, <laughs> yes, Flubber. I, I don't. I don't understand. Like, like what? You know, he shows him the car. It doesn't work. Why doesn't he just go out there and bounce? <laughs> well, yeah, shoes on. he's got on his shoes. And then, well, and, and even and later, he's, got, he's like, "Oh, I should have showed him." He had the ball in his pocket. Yeah, he he's like, the "Oh, ball I could have showed it. Showed it to these guys." Again, this just goes back to my question: Is how did Ned get Betsy in the first place? How did that even happen? Because he can barely function. So right. how did that? How did that kick off? Like, how did that start? Or just yeah. she just feels sorry for him. Maybe she so needed Betsy's an escort saw, somewhere. That's right. She was she was tired of going to the basketball games alone. Right. That's yeah, it. that's true. I mean, trying to get Shelby to quit macking on her all the time. <laughs> so now Betsy's decided that she's going to team up with Brainerd again, and they're back together, and all is forgiven. So they go over to Hawk's mansion and uh, with the flubber shoes and try to convince him to try the shoes on. And they talk about how, you know, you know, not everybody drives a car, but everybody wears shoes. This is the real investment here, not the car. You know, it's the shoes. And not knowing how to stop, <clears throat> Hawk uh, starts bouncing up and down. But first, Brainerd leaps out the balcony to prove a point that the shoes, uh, you know, you can bounce and you can say, you know, you're not going to kill yourself by leaping off of uh, off of high buildings and stuff like that. Well, he does this whole thing about it. It's like for the good of mankind because you're trapped in a burning building. That's and right. You yeah. like jump out the window and anymore. you're safe. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Hawk starts bouncing up and down, and he can't figure out how to stop. And every time he hits the ground, he goes higher and higher. And then they uh, they just leave him there and uh, yeah. and, and take off. I will but, say, like the outside jumping effect, I'm. I mean, I assume they did it the way they did these other things, too. But the jumping effect is really good, like, even in the daylight. And they do this really cool, like, point-of-view camera of Ned and Betsy, like, standing on the ground talking to each other. It's, like, from Hawk's point of view as he's jumping. And I don't really know how they did that, but I couldn't it's, figure it's that a really cool shot. I yeah. was watching that over and over. I mean, I watched that scene several times because, I mean, if they had it on a crane, I mean, how were they, how were they stopping it? I mean, it there must have been some sort of a, a safety mechanism they were able to to lower the camera to a certain point well and the the way they when it goes down and up the camera angle like changes like you would follow right. them yeah. with your eyes it's pretty impressive yeah it was really it was i mean I'd, I'd love to know how they did that i couldn't figure it out did this movie win any awards yeah actually it's funny you said that. i was just thinking about this it was nominated for 3 academy awards uh, for art direction for uh, best cinematography, Edward wow. Coleman was the guy, there you and go, then right also there. for best special effects. So it right. got three Oscar noms for that. So Hawk admits that he has the car and it's hidden in a warehouse, and they leave. They just leave him there bouncing, and they go find the car. So at Hawk's warehouse, the goons are guarding the car, and Brainerd and Betsy arrive. Brainerd sneaks in by bouncing with his shoes up to the second floor and climbs in through the window and hops back down and lets Betsy in. So they're kind of banging around in there and stumbling around looking for the the car, and there's like some a lot of jokes about what they're hearing, and like he gets his foot stuck in a harp. Yeah, yeah. they like I hear a harp music. This, this is crazy. Makes me, like really, it's like kind of like nerve wracking to watch. Like oh, them, like trying to get the foot out of. Like that gave me like anxiety as a kid, but there's like fun like dialogue between like the thug guys because one of them calls Hawk old fish eye, which is pretty good. <laughs> but then they're talking about like the guy here in harps and the other guy thinks he's crazy and he says, 
Remember Feisty McKenna? With him, it wasn't harp noises. He kept hearing bird calls. That's right. <laughs> so they cut back at this point, back to Hawk, who's ba- still bouncing, and the fire department arrives. And it's the, uh, who, he was from uh, Mary Poppins. What was, I can't remember the actor's name now. Yeah, Ed, so this is Ed Wynn, who oh, is. Hi. Yeah, Ed Wynn. Keenan Wynn, Alonzo Hawk's dad. So oh. uh, there are a couple of cameos in this scene um, that are like Disney legend cameos. And one is Ed Wynn, who was in a bunch of stuff. He was uh, in Mary Poppins, of course, and a lot of other things. He was one of Walt's favorite actors. And he's the fire chief, which is an in-joke that people at the time would have got. Because he, he was a big radio star in the 30s. And his role on the radio was the Texaco fire chief. Oh. So this was like a joke about that, which people would have understood at the time. And the other uh, sort of Disney legend cameo is uh, Wally Bogue, who was an actor at Disneyland at the uh, Golden Horseshoe Jamboree, who's there as a TV reporter. And he actually also did a lot of Brainerd stunt double stuff. So like a lot of the really physical stuff and like the dancing and stuff, that was him doing that. So and was he, that his first movie role? I'm not sure. It may have been. He wasn't in too many movies. Like Walt was like obsessed with him. Right. But and you know, people who like know the like the parks would know him from like he did voices for uh like uh the Tiki Birds and a bunch of other stuff. And so. didn't he write the Tiki Room show? Or, yeah, or, or Tiki Room and yeah. Yeah, he helped write it. So, you know, a lot of stuff like that. But he shows up as a TV reporter here. So the fire department can't figure out how to stop Hawk. Biff is just like enjoying the show and like girls are starting to pay attention to him and he's just like living it up. <laughs> and this is like, this is super weird here. And then there's a line here I'm going to ask Andy about, but the local fishermen arrive. And they, they all have their fishing rods. There's like, I guess three or four of them and they cast their rods and they hook on to Hawk's jacket and it just rips it off. It doesn't, they can't, they can't stop him. I guess they're hoping that they could you know, catch him and reel him in. And then Wynn says, uh, I'm a dry fly man myself. And then he sort of pauses as Royal Coachman. So Andy, you're a fly fisherman. Yeah. Royal Coachman. It's not a, it's, it's a pattern of a dry fly. I don't use it. Uh, it's not, I don't use it off that often. Actually, I don't think, I don't think I've ever even thrown that fly, but, uh, yeah, it, it actually is a pattern that exists. (laughs) So, so the goose or then they cut back they can't uh, the hooks don't work so they can't get them down so they, they cut back to the warehouse and the, the goons are now investigating all this racket they're hearing and these harps and, and, <laughs> and making these weird comments that michael mentioned uh, earlier so they charge in they find ned and betsy there and ned starts bouncing uh around the goons and like challenging them to fight but it's stupid kind of fighting though. He's like, come on. It's, it's basically he's like got the way he's got his hands fists up. It's like it's almost like you know, come on, put him up, put him up. Like yeah, it yeah. It's me, like, like those sort of like old timey like Marquise yeah. of Queensberry like uh, fisticuffs. Yeah, <laughs> like come on, fellas. Yeah, you see, like Conan O'Brien's always doing like that. That, that kind of right like, when he's when he's miming that he's fighting. He's always doing that. Yeah. Kind of. They kind of gag, but so the goons like dive and they miss and they bang into the door and he gets the, let me tell you what, these guys are throwing themselves like hard. Whoever did the stunt work. I mean, they were like flinging themselves into this door, but it gives, you know, Brainerd gets the bright idea. He's just going to keep making them do this. 
we cut back now to Hawk's mansion and uh, you know, the hot dog vendors have shown up and everyone's gathered. The whole town is there watching this and they're making jokes that, uh, you know, he's gaining uh, X number of feet every bounce. And by, you know, eight o'clock tonight, he's going to be in some big trouble. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Biff has saves the day by calling the f- football team, which is a little bit of a nod to the yeah. next movie. So the football team, times it that right as he hits the ground they dive and pile up on top of poor old hawk and stop him so we're back at the warehouse now the goons have have hit the door a a number of times now the door crashes open finally they escape with the car and at which time uh hawk arrives and they begin a high-speed chase and start uh shooting at him i mean like pulling guns out now yeah, it's serious. It's, uh, yeah, I do I mean, like the shot where uh, where they fly out of the warehouse and like bank onto their side and then drive down the side of the building that's yes. like the warehouse that's next to it. That's a cool shot. Yeah. Brainerd says, I, I want to give them the old Shelby stomp. So it's got <laughs> so a he's name now. It. <laughs> he's named it now. So he's dropping the car on top of, of, of the chase vehicle and they're chasing him up and down the street, and then the same gag happens. They turn a corner and slam into a cop. So Brainerd drives up as after they hit the cop. It's the same cop again. He spills his coffee again, and he says, you know, which is the fastest way to Washington, D.C.? And he says, you know, by a route. Uh, I don't remember which route it is, but he, he gives him a route number. And he says, no, I'm talking about by the way the crow flies. He just points, you know, to like, I think, like the northeast, which implies that, that Medfield College is relatively close to Washington because we wouldn't think that they're going to fly to Washington D.C. and you know across the country. So, but that well, was sort I mean, of my take. Something and I noticed. Good mileage. Something I noticed when the the uh, the news crew showed up earlier was you can clearly see the 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 numbers of or the letters of W H G N. Okay, and, uh, so there you go. Yeah, it's it's, it's on I the East Coast then. Yeah. That's interesting. I okay. never would have thought. Yeah. So they fly to Washington, and as they approach Washington, they enter the no-fly zone, and we get the whole <laughs> five-minute birds uh, sequence. So they're they're seeing them on the radar, and they say, the scramble the five-minute birds, and we see some great B-roll of, of fighter pilots rushing out to their their um, fighter planes. And I looked it up, and they're Corvair F-102 Delta Daggers. Uh, yeah. which are these yeah. old planes uh, from the 50s and 60s. Also, the the voice here, uh, Paul Freeze does the voiceover uh, for the Air Force Alert and uh, also for the radio announcer. And he is many, many, many things in animation and otherwise, but also the ghost host at the Haunted Mansion, oh, at, right. among many other voices. And Ludwig vocals. von Drake. And Ludwig von Drake. Oh. And uh, Boris... From Boris and Natasha, Rocky and Bullwinkle, you know all sorts of things. And one other notable cast member is uh, the the military radio dispatcher who first sees them on the radar, played by uh, the actor Sam Edwards, uh, another Andy Griffith show uh, actor. He played. He had two major roles. Uh, he played Sam in the Christmas Story, where um, you know they Andy has to put this family in jail during Christmas and tries to make it you know, a nice place for him, and then uh, he also in, plays Lester Scobie when Andy has to foreclose on the family. So yeah, same actor. Oh yeah, 
hard times yeah. for this guy. For this guy. <laughs> Maybe yeah. that's why I joined the Air Force. There you go, yeah. <laughs> so the F, F-102s go buzzing by the Model D. And they go, oh, no, there's, they're, I think they're after us. So they go and hide in the clouds. So the pilot radios back no, and says, but they have this moment because they like Brainerd like kisses Betsy and the jet buzzes them and she's like, Oh Ned. <laughs> That's right. So it's the whole gag of the <laughs> Oh my goodness. Oh boy. So, so so she licks his face in the morning and then he yeah. must do something to her that makes that yeah, thrilling. So the Air Force pilots radio back. <laughs> they can't find the car. It's gone into a cloud. So the Air Force now can't decide what to do. They can't. They need to know what, how to proceed. So Ned and Betsy fly over Washington while a large battery of missiles and are aimed at them. <laughs> so, and also the pilot of uh, the plane also has the terrifying Shelby eyes. Yes, he has the big glassy Shelby eyes too. Yes, that's and true. Yeah, the weird sweaty pilot too. Also, uh, back at the Air Force HQ, uh, General Hotchkiss is on the horn, played by character actor Alan Hewitt, who is uh, a favorite of Jeff and mine, <laughs> who should get, should get a shout out. Because he always plays like the same kind of guy, but he's uh, very distinctive. And I have an awkward note here. I, I put down about Betsy. They're flying, as they're flying over Washington, I don't. I didn't understand why they did this. She says, "Oh, look, it's Grant's tomb," and and Ned. Yeah, it's, sort of it's goes, a, like a weird Betsy is dumb joke. Yeah, about <laughs> it. Well, it's Jefferson Memorial, and uh, she's like, "Oh, it's Grant's says, oh, that's tomb. Monticello." That's what. She's uh, yeah, he's like, "No, it's the Jefferson Memorial." She's like, yeah. "Oh yeah, Monticello." Yeah, it's like so yeah. it's just a little Betsy is dumb joke. Yeah, for you. Yes, I mean, she is a spinster secretary. So. <laughs> right, right. so the air commander announces over all commercial wavelengths. It's nice that uh, I put that out here. There's a, a nice plot here that uh, Brainerd points out earlier in the movie that his Model T has a radio in it. When, he, when he's noticing that yeah. the one that he's in doesn't have a radio. So he's installed a radio because I've, I've been in Model T's and they clearly do not have radios in them. So they give them a countdown to 10. If they don't ID themselves, then they're going to shoot you know, nuclear missiles or something. I don't know what they're aiming at them, but yeah, it was, that's a lot. Of, it was, that's a lot of firepower aimed at them. Yeah, it's big. So it's a lot of lead. <laughs> that's right. They swing a lot of lead in Washington. So, after it's like all of the countdown scene is great. I mean, great acting by Alan Hewitt. It's he. It's just this really turn, turn on. <laughs> but they get in a. It's a really good. They're sticking it to the man left and right with all this Washington stuff. But they they basically joke about blowing up Congress, right. yes. and it, it, it's extended, yeah, yeah, because they like they hide behind the rotunda, yeah, they take yeah the they hide behind the rotunda, and they're like, oh, they're they're behind Congress, and he just keeps counting, and they're like, Congress is in session, all the senators and congressmen will be killed, and he's like, five, <laughs> four. <laughs> And he only stops when the guy says they just put a new front on the building. And then right. he just kind of shrugs. He's like, okay. <laughs> so back at the Pentagon, the word gets around that there's a Model T flying over Washington. So all the generals that had gone to um, to Medfield earlier in the movie jump up and run out the door. So right as they're getting ready to hit the button and, and blow up whatever, 
Congress, the Model T, the generals bust in and uh, and stop the whole thing because they realize that that Professor Brainerd has shown up with his flying Model T now. They also get in another sort of this modern age gag because they're when they're threatening to shoot him down, he's like, no, I'm an American. Look at all my credit cards. And he like holds up his wallet and this, this huge like row of uh, like 20 credit cards comes like spilling out of his wallet. So a press conference is, uh, or he decides I, I need, we need to land. They, they, they give him clearance now. He says, I need to land. And he's like, how about that nice peach, uh, piece of grass down there? And, of course, they land on the front lawn of the White House. So a press conference of the White House convinces, and we find that, uh, that uh, out that a deal has been struck with the government for Flubber. And a reporter asks if there are any other worlds that Brainerd hopes to conquer. And we have an immediate cut, and we're back at the President Daggett's house at Midfield College. And Betsy and Brainerd are, are getting married. And they leave in the fly a Model T, and the movie ends. Roll credits. They finally got married. They did. They finally got married. Fourth time's the charm. Fourth time's a charm. So that wraps up the movie. Um, Andy, what'd you think? I don't know. I mean, there's parts of this movie I I really thought was just flat out silly. Uh, I don't really. I mean, the whole absent minded professor part. The, the the title just really applies to him getting married. That's the only thing he really was forgot about. The the rest of the time he wasn't all that absent minded. Uh, I just I just didn't care for him. I didn't like the professor. I, he was kind of selfish, and I don't know. I was like I said, I was cheering for Shelby parts of the, this movie. Um, <laughs> oh no, I know. Uh, but I again, I really loved Hawk. I thought Hawk was really good. And and to be honest, once he was arrested by the you know police officers there at the end, I just kind of checked out. I was like, okay, this whole. Uh, DC stuff could have been left out, but yeah, I mean, so parts of it I really enjoyed and parts of it I didn't enjoy. So Michael, what was the reaction at the time? Well, the film was a big box office hit. Uh, in fact, it inspired a sequel, Son of Flubber, which was the first live action sequel, uh, actually the only live action sequel that Walt ever made. Uh, so it was a big hit. Uh, like I said, it got three Oscar nominations and uh, I have I have some uh, quotes from reviews. Time said it's the season's kookiest science fiction farce. Flubber provides fuel for a very funny piece of hyperbolic humor in the grand American tradition of Paul Bunyan, whatever that means. What? And, uh, <laughs> Variety, so I don't weird. know. <laughs> this one's even more weird. Variety says beneath the preposterous veneer lurks a comment on our time, a reflection of the plight of the average man haplessly confronted with the complexities of a jet age civilization burdened with fear, red tape, official mumbo jumbo and ambitious anxiety deeply rooted within the screenplay is a subtle protest against the detached impersonal machinery of modern progress. So I don't know if any of you guys wow, caught, caught any of that what? in the movie, but yeah, uh, I missed that. Yeah. Mumbo jumbo. But uh, <laughs> Most important. Those guys is, are wrong. Yeah. <laughs> is what the man himself, Leonard Malton, says. So let's hear what Leonard Malton said. Leonard Malton said in his tome, The Disney Films, The Absent-Minded Professor cannot really be called one of Disney's best films, but it surely is one of his biggest audience pleasers. 
Everything is tailored towards getting laughs on the broadest possible basis, and one cannot argue with success. So that's what they said about it. Well, there you go. So they're saying that it was it was popular and it made money, but it wasn't necessarily a good movie. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I think that's kind of what he's saying. Not one of the best. And also the uh, complexities of Jet Age Civilization and comment on our time. And Mumbo yes, Jumbo. All of that. <laughs> Mumbo Jumbo. <laughs> Well, I think that just, so, yeah. yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, now it's just time for us to rate it. So we will, uh, fire up the old computer that wore tennis shoes and get ready to rate on our uh, special system. Robert, uh, what is our scale tonight? Well, Jeff, our scale tonight is going to be one of the plot elements of this movie. And, um, they made one quick reference to this and it's what they referred to model T's at the time, which were 10 Lizzie's. So the Model T being so prominent in the movie, I thought we would rate with 10 Lizzie's. All right. So based on a scale of one to five, 10 Lizzie's, we're going to start off with the plot and writing. And we'll just go to Andy first. What you got? Uh, I think I'm just going to stay in the middle of the road because I liked some of this and I didn't like some of this. I'm going to say a three. Okay. Michael? I'm going to go, I'll give it a, I'll give it a four. Okay. I believe. Robert. I am also going to give it a four. Okay. And I, I will also give it a four. All right. Moving on to casting. Uh, Robert. Um, I think the casting was, was solid. I, again, I'm going to give it a four as well. Okay. And Michael. I'm going to give it a five. I like all the, um, it's like character actor overload a lot of fun people and anything with Alonzo Hawk gets an extra star in my book. And Andy. Yeah. I'm going to go with a four. I like the casting. I thought it was very well done for each part. Yeah. I'll also go with a four. I don't know whether, um, Betsy was stiff as an actress or her part was stiff, but that's kind of my only beef. Everybody else did great. Alonzo kind of a thankless role. It's really a thankless role. To take on. Yes, it's true. It's true. But Shelby Ashton, I mean, my gosh. Um, yeah. Well, which brings us to the acting. What do we got Alonzo there? Alonzo Hawk. Yeah. Alonzo Hawk, all the way. I mean, I, even Ashton, I thought he really comes across as that, that you know, smimy kind of, you know, snooty know it all. Uh, so I'm going to go with a four. Almost went five, but I'm going to stay with a four. Okay. Uh, Andy? I agree. Four seems very suitable for that. I'll go, I'll, I'll go five. I'll go five, but it's a, it's a close thing. Yeah. I'll stick with a four because of, uh, yeah, the Betsy, the Betsy problem, but maybe it's just a writing. Maybe I should dock the writing. I don't know. Four it is for me. Um, and which brings us to production value. And I will give that a five because I think that the special effects are great. There's a lot of great music. There is, yeah, I, th- I think it was. Did we shout out George Bruns? I can't remember if I did at the top or not. Uh, George Bruns deserves a shout right, out. Right, he one. absolutely does. The sound effects, uh, I think it's just uh, a great coming out of the gate live action uh, production. Robert? Yeah, five for me. I mean, I think the special effects, practical, uh, they were innovative. Uh, you never saw the wires, I mean, and, and they were using. And I just, yeah, I thought it was just very well done. So five for me. Michael? Yeah, I'll give it a five, too. They 
for all the reasons you guys said. And, you know, it's, it's was rare that Disney made a movie in black and white and they shot this in black and white to help hide some of those special effects. And I think it really worked. It made it look, it look really good as well. And Andy, what you got? I, I mean, I agree with what you guys are saying, but I, I just can't, can't bring myself to give it a five for that. So I was just going to stick with a four. Wow. It's hard to, hard to believe, hard to believe. <laughs> uh, and finally entertainment value. Andy, we'll go back to you. What you got? I think I'm going to have to go back to a three on this because, like I said, there's parts I really liked and parts I really did not like. So I'm going to stick in the middle of the road and stay with three. Okay. Robert? I'm going to go four. I mean, even the bad parts, like the basketball scenes, I mean, you're still there's still elements of that that I like. And, uh, and even some of the bad writing that, you know, that's in there, it's, it's, but it's kind of kooky and I, and I, I still laugh at it. You know, it's not like in, in Gus and, you know, Botnicks where the bad writing kind of like dragged it down a little bit. Um, even the bad writing, I think the bad writing in this still, you know, you're able to kind of prop yourself up a little bit on it. So for this one, I'm going to go with a four. Definitely. And Michael. I'm going to go with a four as well. I, I actually like the basketball stuff. I think it's fun, but uh, a lot of the absent minded professor stuff, especially towards the beginning, like I said, it's uh, it doesn't wear on me as well now that I'm an adult as when I was a kid, even as a kid, it seemed kind of, kind of nerve wracking that he was such an idiot. Uh, but you know, now it's even worse, but, uh, but overall, I mean, I think it's a lot of fun and there's a lot of good lines and a lot of, uh, you know, good acting. So again, I'll give it a four overall. And I agree with that. I'll just give it a solid four. Makes sense to me. Uh, the first act feels a little slow and then once it picks up, I'm all in. So I enjoyed it. All right, let's punch these into our computer. All right. The computer is now chewing on it and we come out with a 4.15. So we get a okay. nice solid B yeah. rating. Four ten Lizzie's on this one. And that is way above what we've had previously. <laughs> most, <laughs> Shockingly. Most, uh, Gus and, and, and poor old Boatniks were coming in at a... Uh, Boatniks was cover, hovering around a D minus, I think. <laughs> right. and, then, and poor Gus, we'd be rated out as an F. <laughs> that makes sense. Makes sense. All right, so let me ask you this. If we were going to remake this movie now, for I mean, ignore the other reboots that have happened. Let's let's talk about who would you put, who would you be your ideal cast in this movie? Well, I'm going to jump in there immediately and say that you know I look at at the, to, to talk about the reboot or the remake um, with the late great Robin Williams. The, I never saw it, but the cover of it had a you know a, a CGI ball of goo on it, and it just. It, you know this the this, the CGI stuff in the trailer for it just looked bad. So I was sitting there thinking, who is the master of the practical effect in today's film world? And that would be Christopher Nolan in my book. So if I was going to pick a director, I would make Christopher Nolan remake this movie. And if it's going to be Christopher Nolan, you know Michael Caine's going to be in there somewhere. So who is Michael Caine playing? Would. I mean, would he be uh, Daggett? I think he would be Daggett. He would have to be Daggett, right? Yeah. He couldn't be Hogg. I don't want any of my secretaries being a spitster. (laughs) That's good. I mean, but if no one's doing it, it's not going to be a comedy. It's going to be real serious, right? 
I don't know, you know. Uh, it could lean into the uh, more absent-minded aspects of, uh, of the thing, but it would play the professor. <laughs> a gritty, oh, I like, so yeah, so a gritty absent-minded professor. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm thinking. It's going to be gritty. This is a reboot. This is, we got to rethink It's the this opposite thing. of the Robin Williams version, yeah. which the only things I know about are flubber butts and the scene where the bad guy ate the flubber and it came out a steaming hole in his the backside of his pants. So that's all I know about it. And that was Shooter McGavin. So this is the opposite. Shooter McGavin. The, uh, yeah. the the Shooter McGavin was the bad McGavin. guy. That's right. He was the Shelby Ashton equivalent. Which is perfect. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Great casting on that. That's great. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, but so, uh, Nolan, who we got? We got yeah, G- uh, Gary Oldman would be a possibility somewhere in well, there. He'd be good. He, Le- Liam he'd Neeson. He'd be good. Absent professor. Yeah. Is, 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 is uh, C- Cillian Murphy. Uh, you know, he was, uh, oh, he, well, he could be, well, if he was younger, he could be Biff. And Liam yeah. Neeson could be a great hawk. Uh, just, well, but bit, no, well, I mean, <laughs> Biff has got to be jo- Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Joseph Gordon-Levitt's going to be Biff. Oh, yeah, Biff. there you go. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's but it. Liam Neeson as the Rajah Ghul, uh, <laughs> Alonzo Hawk. Very, very classy. Tom Hardy could play Hawk. I mean, you know. Oh. <laughs> I was going to say, if we went a different direction, though, if we went more comedy-based, I was going to think, I was thinking like Jeff Goldblum it would be a good absent-minded professor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> sure, sure. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, the reboots. I mean, because there's been two made. Yeah, um, there there was a TV uh, back when Disney started doing a lot of TV stuff on M- NBC in the late 80s. They did two uh, TV movies with the truly great and late, sadly, Harry Anderson as the absent-minded professor. So I'm gonna throw this out here. So who's your favorite absent-minded professor? Because we've had some great actors here. We got Fred, we got um, Robin Williams, and Harry Anderson now. So I just love Harry Anderson so much. Yeah. So you think Harry Anderson's the best of the three? Huh? We have to see. Yeah, it. I mean, I haven't seen yeah. that in whatever thirty years or whatever it's been. So yeah, I it's been. I, I can't. Yeah, I can't either. But it's been. I remember. I remember seeing it, but it's been thirty some years. But. I just can't take the flaming, yeah. Poor Robin Williams. Posteriors got, of Robin got, Williams. Yeah, raw. Deal. It doesn't seem like a really good casting for that role. No, it was. It almost felt like the, like they're trying to make up with him because he was mad at him at the time, wasn't he? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's true. So they're throwing some money at him. <laughs> Gave him that painting and threw some money at him. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I like I like our reboot idea though. There's there's always room for more. Yeah, and uh, it gets a lot of reference and uh, in the uh, parks at the uh, Imagination Pavilion at Epcot, there are some references to Professor Brainerd. Mm-hmm. And like we it's said, nothing. the you know the world of Medfield only grows as we will see through Absolutely. many movies, and this is the beginning. So many movies. What do we have coming up uh, on our next episode, Jeff? Looks like we're going south of the border to our first animated movie. We're going to be visiting with the three Caballeros as they tour Latin America. And I got to tell you, I'm I'm really interested to hear what our film critic has to say <laughs> about this one. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting one. It's we, it is a way way different from definitely anything we've seen so far. Yes. It's live action. It's animation. 
It's it's a lot of things. Is it a lot it's like 1940s. Roger Rabbit? It's, it's, it's exactly it's exactly, exactly like, like Roger, Roger Rabbit. Rabbit. <laughs> okay. Then yeah, I'm sure I'll I'll love it. So and if you have Disney Plus, it's on Disney Plus. You can check it out there. Yeah, yeah. Please please watch ahead of time so you can josh along with us yes and we've been getting some uh some some twitter people here have been talking about that so that's exciting and in that twitter our twitter and instagram are both at medfield film and we encourage you to write us an email and our email is info at medfieldfilm.com that's info at medfieldfilm.com uh we'd love to be in touch and answer any questions or get any feedback Go on Apple Podcasts, rate us, uh, subscribe. That just helps us uh, get up higher and higher. We can bring more of these episodes to you guys. That's right. Any any final thoughts, guys, before we sign off for the evening? I'm just glad uh, we saw uh, a little a little better side of the Disney spectrum this week. Definitely. This was a perfect movie to, to launch the podcast officially with here. We kind of did some clunkers to kind of get our feet wet and to get a feel for uh, you know, how this is going to flow. But, I mean, I, this is a great movie. I, I really I really think it was a good one to start with. Yeah. As you guys said, this we've had some pretty two, – two big stinkers, I thought. And this one gives me hope for, for future movies. <laughs> <laughs> so from all of us to all of you, we thank you very much for listening. Please be in touch. We'll be back in a month. Thank you for listening to the Medfield College Film Society.